Welcome to What's Up with Opera. I'm your host, Rebecca Haas. Opera is rooted in history and tradition, but we're living in a post-George Floyd Me Too world. Now artists are challenging conventions. So whose stories are we telling? And who gets to tell them? Can traditional opera be saved? And should it be? I speak with movers and shakers who have a bold new vision. Have you ever been in the audience of an opera and wondered what it would be like to send the story in a different direction? Maybe Tosca doesn't have to jump off the parapet. Or maybe Mimi gets her medicine in time. Or maybe Don Jose doesn't stab Carmen. Today my guest is the Canadian interdisciplinary artist Debbie Wong. And she's hard at work to make this a reality, albeit a virtual one. Debbie is the founding director of Renaissance Opera in Vancouver. She began as a singer of Baroque opera and spent several years in Europe. In her work at Renaissance, she's a passionate steward for new works that are as relevant as today's headlines. And she helped create a podcast called the Apocrypha Chronicles, a sci-fi documentary that uses generative storytelling and audio drama to create a conversation between the present and the future. Debbie is reimagining what opera is, where it happens, and who consumes it, and she is killing it. And I started by asking her about her early career in Baroque music and what drew her to that world. Actually, um, it was a few different things, but really it was just that I'm a giant history dork. And when I was about seven years old, I was at this dinner party with my parents and, you know, I was told to be on my best behavior. And I remember like it was like buffet style, but it was with all my parents' friends and stuff. And I was carrying this plate of food to go sit outside at this picnic, but the glass door was closed. So I walked into this door with like all of this food. It spilled all over me. I was wearing my like little nerdy glasses and I like it hurt my face and I was like so mortified that I ran into this little room in like the back of the house somewhere and um, Romeo and Juliet was playing some stage version that was filmed and I was just glued to that television for three and a half hours watching the entire like broadcast of this play and from that moment I was obsessed with Shakespeare I just thought this was such an interesting like storytelling form and so I got really interested in the Elizabethan era and at the same time I had been studying choir and singing music and Um, I remember when I was getting ready to apply for universities, that moment where it just clicked. I was like, oh my gosh, all the music, all the poetry, all the text, all the stories, all the history that I love comes from this one specific time um, and this one specific place. And so that's what inspired me to start looking into early music and the lute song specifically of that time and just how the music and theater and arts and culture scene was coming to life in 16th and 17th century England. So pretty random. <laughs> but that's how I ended up there. <laughs> All right. So I do love your origin story, and I love that it's um, obviously language, right? Shakespeare, and that makes sense in Baroque music. It is when language was at the front. Mm-hmm. Uh, what brought you to contemporary music, which that's really your home base now? It seems like it's a hundred, hundreds of years beyond where you started, but also stylistically such a different thing. Yeah, so that was a very different journey for me. Um, When I was kind of coming through the conservatory system and the university system, your teachers, everyone encourages you to find your niche and to kind of become more and more specialized, more and more focused. And I even remember like one of my teachers saying like, you can't be a jack of all trades and master of none. Like the point is to become really a master and a specialist. But the kind of more narrow and more focused I became, the more uncomfortable I became. And I just felt like my own artistic and creative instinct 
instincts were just being dampened and I was being forced into ways of practicing and processes that just didn't suit me, my identity, who I am, what I want to explore and express and create. And so as I was moving through my doctorate, I started implementing more and more experimental practices. And the more I experimented, the more I kind of kept landing in these contemporary spaces. And so I decided to create Renaissance Opera as a platform to kind of experiment with form and with processes and with different practices. And it started very much as a company that would adapt existing works. And so we would you know, blow up librettos and write new ones to existing music and or we would shift stories or we would bring technology into Baroque operas. But the more I did that, the more I still felt constrained by the stories and the voices telling the stories. And so it just made sense to shift to contemporary formats and to look for other storytellers that I admire and ask them what kind of stories they wanted to tell and how they wanted to tell them. And now I feel like I've definitely found my home. But, you know, Baroque influences and historical, you know, uh, Western European music definitely like filters into a lot of the things that we create and work with. Yeah, I can hear that there are elements that you love, but ultimately inside that form, it's interesting to hear you talk about the confines of absolutely specialization, uh, the way the institution works. Uh, But I also hear you mentioning this idea of identity and how you fit. Is there Mm -hmm. something about your identity where you feel that traditional opera is not a fit for you? Is that something... I mean, yes, <laughs> 100%. I mean, first of all, I'm a woman. So if I'm going to like portray a female identified character on stage, like definitely getting murdered or accosted, harassed, like this is just the role that women are, are written into in opera. And that's, you know, such a, I, I don't even know how to speak about it because like I, I have this belief where I just, I firmly feel that, the stories we tell on stage affect the communities and shape the communities that we tell. So if we are always telling stories about women who are subject to the whims of their male counterparts or who are constantly subjected to violence, um, what are we telling about women in our society? And then on top of that, I'm Chinese. So there are a million horrible stereotypes that Chinese women are asked to portray in all forms of media and continue to be asked to portray. And the characters that are available to Chinese women in opera are really not great. (laughs) Um, And so it took a long time for me to realize that's how uncomfortable like a lot of my discomfort with some of the art form comes from. And I mean, it had a lot to do also with just myself kind of being raised to subdue my Chinese heritage and to not think about it and to act as white as I could and to also make fun of myself for being Chinese with my white friends. You know, there's all these kinds of things that get layered into your lived experience. And as I get older and kind of more comfortable with who I am and embracing who I am, I I realize how different my childhood might have been to see different characters portrayed um, in all forms of media. And so I love working in classical music and that's where I like to express myself. And so I feel very responsible and called to be opening up and creating new kinds of stories for the communities that we live in. So you came to this earlier than most people were really thinking about it. And knowing that for a young singer, it's very hard to sort of take a look at the system because you're just trying to get work inside the system. (laughs) Is it something that evolved over time or is there sort of a moment you look back on and go, oh, yeah, I sure do see how things turned that day? 
Uh, it's a little bit of a combo. Like when I, so it definitely was during my doctorate. I'm still finishing my doctorate at Sibelius Academy, but I went in with like a very specific idea of studying English theater and English lute song and bringing together the kind of theatrical and musical elements of Shakespearean plays and finding new ways to present them and be a classical singer and, and do this work. The underlying impetus was how do I expand my artistic practice and how do I expand my artistic voice? But it was in the confines of Shakespearean theater. And as I kept kind of trying to do new things, I kept hitting the same wall of just repeating the same things over and over again because I couldn't know what I didn't know. And so it was after my second concert that I did, you you have to do five, (laughs) that I decided I have to try a completely different process. I have to blow this up. I have to try something new. And so I just started saying yes to every single thing that came my way. So, you know, a friend would be like, do you want to go to a whiskey tasting? Yes, I do. I do want to go try all of those. I hate whiskey. I don't hate whiskey anymore. (laughs) Another friend of mine's like, do you want to come to an hour long improv night where we all just hang out in a space and we use the space as an instrument? Yes, I would love to do that. So I went and hung out with a bunch of improv people and like crawled around on a floor, banged on pipes, crawled through like theater rafters, making noise, doing things I'd never done in my training. And so it was just like these little like things. I just sort of made this conscious choice that whatever anyone asks, like as like an artistic experience or something to experience in the world, I will say yes so that I can start putting in new ideas and processes and know new people and new networks into my kind of lived experience. And from there, I started finding new collaborators and new ways of working and doing things. And this is when things got out of control. And um, I finished my doctorate with a fully improvised performance on the the story of Medea. Um, I still had some Baroque themes in there. And we created an electroacoustic score, my colleague James Andy, um, out of just my vocal sounds. And I remember sitting in my final jury and my jury members saying, what are you doing? You're not a director. You're not a dancer. You're not a mover. You're not a designer. You are not a writer. You are not a storyteller. You're supposed to be a classical singer. What are you doing? And I was like, I I think I did it. Like I, I I figured it out. Like I, I found a way to like push those boundaries and experiment. And I've moved beyond those very rigid walls and spaces that I felt stuck in. And so that was definitely the moment where I was like, okay, I've, I've crossed the line. Now what? Um, but it, we were building up to that for sure. <laughs> so there's pushback, obviously, where people went, oh my God, you've just went over the line. What are you doing? And of course, we are very much obsessed with, you don't have a piece of paper that says you're a director and you don't have a piece of paper that says this. Yes. Have you then not found, or how did you may not want any acceptance outside of this world you were creating? Like some singers try to keep a foot in both worlds, or did you just at that point go, you know what, I don't want to play in your sandbox. Your sandbox is too small for me. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm, I definitely was like, no, I, I'm, I'm done with this sandbox. Um, and the reason is because it's not because I don't appreciate it or still love the art forms and the different things that come up, but I, I feel that the beauty of our arts and cultural scenes is when we have many voices or we have a like multiplicity of, of offerings. And I think that when we diversify an art form like opera, which is feels, you know, like a, if you're an outsider coming into opera, the thing I hear the most is, oh, it's so boring. It's so long. I don't understand it. The stories are so old. Like these are the things that I hear from people who've never been to opera before and they hear that I work in opera. And I like to say like, no, that's just one version of opera. And I think that's what like adds to the art form 
form, any art form, is when you have different voices and creators and artists like really making it their own and offering like their take on what it could be or what it is for them. And that helps everyone appreciate all the different versions of what opera is or whatever art form you're working within. So I'm done with being a Baroque singer. That's not going to happen anymore. But I'm still happy to be creating alongside that art form. So That's an amazing story. I mean, it's really an amazing story. And that you didn't throw opera out entirely and just go, I'm just going to be a theater performer or I'm just going to go to music theater like, or just pick another form where you fit. But instead said, no, I'm going to take opera kicking and <laughs> screaming. I'm going to drag it along and make it come on the journey. Well, I, I don't really have a choice because it, I think it's so funny now, like all the things that I have been told that I am not. But, you know, I am a classically trained singer my entire life since I'm 13 years old. You know, I'm 38 now. Like I've had a lot of years of studying classical music. I've had a lot of years of theory, a lot of like, and because I like it and I enjoy it. And it is my art form. It is how I like to express it is the I, I love engaging with it and so I am an opera artist and even though it doesn't fit into what you know my education prescribed it is who I am you're listening to what's up with opera if you're enjoying our conversation with Debbie Wong, don't miss our upcoming episode with groundbreaking interdisciplinary artist and performer Taya Kasahara, the Toronto Star called Taya a force of nature, and the Globe and Mail said they're an artist with extraordinary things to say. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to hit subscribe and leave us a review. Now, you're the creative director of Orpheus VR, and I think that that, because that's an interactive opera that we engage in a sense of play, I feel like this somehow is embodying this mission that I'm hearing from you. Um, what do you think that you're, well, what are you hoping, I guess, that opera as a VR thing gives us and how this furthers your mission for play? Yeah. Um, so Orpheus VR was this interesting thing that came out of discussions with people um, from the tech world. And also, again, connecting back to me being a giant nerd, um, I love video games and I've been playing video games since I was, before I was taking singing lessons, I was playing video games. And I just sort of had this moment where I was thinking like, how can I bring in like my joy for games and playing and immersive experiences and opera all together and it just so happened that my best friend's younger brother was working in VR at the time. And he's like, well, I make virtual reality. You sounds like you're describing virtual reality. And so we just, you know, had a couple beers and talked about what that would look like. And I think like the interactive piece is something that I'm really interested in and something that I have been exploring um, with Renaissance from the very first production we ever did. And it, I think the interaction is that piece that allows us to have more dialogue and connection with the audience. It's not about an audience member coming in and having a passive experience, which I think is very valuable too. But we have lots of those occasions to be passive members in experiences. And so I want people to come to our experiences knowing that they will have the option to interact a little bit more and to shape what they're a part of a little bit more than they normally would to really like be a co-creator and in some ways have their own creativity inspired or their own sense of play inspired. So in the interactive performance, in a nutshell, for people who don't understand maybe what virtual reality is right. or what this means in terms of it 
and opera being part of it. Do you want to give us just sort of a, I'm sure you're quite good at this by now, your sort of elevator style pitch of what that is? Yes, it is epic opera meets choose your own adventure. Um, but Orpheus VR, you have to experience in a headset. So you wear a virtual reality headset, an Oculus Quest. It has two controllers. And when you go into the space, um, you, you go into the world of Orpheus and Eurydice, and it's like a very fantasy and mythological um, world. And you feel like you're there and you get told that you have the power of fate and you get to help the characters decide what their fate will be. And as you go through the world, you have virtual hands, and so you can touch things like trees and flowers, and they will react to you, and their reactions are musical. So when you're in a certain space, you can change the orchestration and sort of um, watch things flourish and fall, and the orchestration changes with you. So that element of play is that, you know, like you get to bat around at trees and flowers and things happen. But then that element of co-creation is that when you do, the orchestration changes. And when you make choices for the characters, the sequence of arias that you're going to hear changes as well. So you're composing, you're playing, you're observing, you're doing all of those things in this experience. So so I have a quote from your Twitter. You said, the tech sector is so creative and the ways they go about problem solving and creating and innovating the processes for that are just things we don't learn about in the classical music world. So what do we need to learn from the tech sector? Failure. Constant <laughs> failure. Never-ending oh. failure. But uh, no, so when I started working with um, my Orpheus VR team, it was just, you know, we're still figuring out process and we've been working together for a really long time now and uh, it's such a wonderful team. But the thing that caught me off guard the first time was just that it's all about iteration. So I feel like we do, as classical trained singer, I do my iterating in the practice room behind a closed door. I practice my skills a billion times. They're always horrible. I try to make them better. I try to sing higher, louder, faster, more supported. I try to be calm. I, I do all these things behind closed doors and I do them for a very long time. And then I have my one, two, maybe three shots at doing this performance that I spend so much time by myself, like beating myself up and my technique, trying to get it perfect. And then I go on stage and of course it's not perfect. And then I beat myself up afterwards because I failed and I didn't do a good job because it needs to be perfect. I, you know, I don't subscribe to that anymore. Um, but this is very much how I felt at the peak of like my performing and my studies. Like I, I often had crises over, I can't be a performer because I'm never going to be good enough and just feeling like I just didn't belong on stage. So when I started working with my tech friends, it was really about the trial and error process. It was like, oh no, why would we spend that much time doing all of these things when we need to do like every single thing, like a few different times and we need to mess it up every single time so that we know what is going to work. And it was this idea of just like quickly doing things for the sake of discovering what you discover in process. And that's what I feel like I wish I had had more of was this encouragement to fail in process or to dig into process so that I could discover these things that I, ha I have come to discover, but, you know, maybe find them a bit sooner. So I love failing with my team. <laughs> I, I love that. I think um, I've never really thought about it that way in terms of what the creative process is, but I think that's it's totally brilliant. You know, Wendy Nielsen's famous quote is always, uh, if you, she says to young singers, if you like to spend eight hours a day by yourself in a small closed room practicing the same thing over and over again, do I have a job for you? <laughs> because exactly. Because think it's the performance, but as you say, it's maybe three shots at it. it if you if you're lucky. the hours up, it's nothing compared to the preparation, nothing. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so this is just like constant play, actually. Like we're just like we're constantly trying to discover something every time we do something with the Orpheus VR team. So. All right. So I'm going to step into the shoes of the skeptic and the opera people out there who say if it's not in the opera house and we're not sitting on our velvet seats and it's not a proscenium arch and the orchestra isn't live in front of me, it's not opera. What is your response? <laughs> yes, I, I actually love this comment because it goes into the list of things that I'm not. Um, and uh, we get told all the time that that's not opera. Just like I've been told my whole life that I am, I am, I'm not a soprano. I'm not a mezzo. I'm not a director. I'm not any of these things. Uh, and yet, <laughs> um, but the thing about what opera is, is um, we think about opera as a process and as a tool. Um, it is not the product that we are creating. So when people come to create with us and work with us, we're not saying create an opera and this is what opera looks like. We're saying we work in this form that was invented 450 years ago by a bunch of artists and philosophers and scientists and thinkers and singer-songwriters that would come together and talk about how they could innovate art and storytelling. We want you to come to us and do the same thing. We want you to come in and talk about storytelling with us and innovate with us. Like, what are the stories we need to be telling? How are we going to tell them? What, what are your creative instincts and voices and mediums that you use? And then we go from there. And that's why we end up creating things like a podcast or a virtual reality video game or a digital live stream with avatars that sing and dance or a staged production in the opera house with velvet seats. It's about the artists that we bring together and the stories that they want to tell and how they want to tell it. And um, as I said, we create musically driven narrative experiences. And so to me, that's an opera. I was looking at your website at some of the new pieces in development, uh, the ASL opera, Caustic Effect and Angel's <laughs> Bone about yeah. traffic and exploitation of youth. Um, and I guess this is the natural next question, which is what role does opera have to play in social justice? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think all art has an important role to play in social justice. Um, I don't actually subscribe to art for art's sake. Um, I, I'm definitely a, a art makes comments on our, our society and our daily lives and our lived experiences, whether we want it to or not, because it is created by us and because our art and our artistic voices are shaped by our experiences and everything that, that happens to us or that we make happen and all the people that we come into contact with and our creative voices just like our lived experiences are in constant dialogue with one another and it's it's always evolving and changing and so the the power of art and opera is that it just it opens up a whole other way for people to engage with things that maybe they're intimidated by or they don't understand or they don't know how to engage with it. Um, art offers us the opportunity to step into a different world, to empathize, to learn empathy, um, to learn of different experiences in kind of a quote-unquote safe way. And I also think that as people who are shaping societies through the stories that we tell and, and creating things that are public facing to go into our communities, that we are called to also be aware of what's happening in our communities and to help facilitate those dialogues and those conversations that are difficult to have or that are not being had um, through the power of creativity and our creativity. I think that's our role as artists. I know not all people think that, but that's what I think. <laughs> Thank you.
you're a co-director on a project or you were on it called Augmented Opera. And in an interview about Augmented Opera, you talked about um, a process that was non-hierarchical. And opera is has a real hierarchy in place. And I think um, we laugh sometimes because it's not like a book somewhere that says it. There's a lot of there's rules that we pass on to one another about how it's supposed to be. But you've chosen something different. And tell me a little bit about what that gives you creatively and why you chose a non-hierarchical approach. Yeah. So we're always talking about, actually in Renaissance right now, even with our um, core team, like we're just always talking about power, who has power in the room, who doesn't and why. Um, And right now as a company, we're talking about how I hold a lot of the power because I started the company and I, I, you know, at the end of the day, I make the decisions. And these are very like open, transparent conversations. It's like, okay, here's how it works right now. Um, But Uh, We want to explore what it means to share power and we want to explore what it means to to unsubscribe from those sort of top-down power structures where we have people like the the composer who's often dead being the kind of creative genius that we have to like all revere then the kind of conductor who embodies the spirit of the composer to imbue upon the performers um then this you know the stage director in there too who has the another again this is usually a creative genius role where it's like they have the vision that's going to like you know make this come to life and then we have the performers it's like well they just do what they're told and and all of those things and so we're often like when we start creating new works um there's usually performers designers um there's there's co we just call everyone a co-creator because everyone has an important thing to contribute at that beginning phase it's not just about us telling a librettist to write something and then them writing a piece of work that then they hand to a composer which then goes to a conductor and a stage director it's about having all those people in the room together and having that push and pull and ebb and flow of ideas and having them shape it together and then bring it to life. And it doesn't mean that, you know, everything is necessarily done like completely democratically and we vote on everything. And it's more that like everyone comes with a full acknowledgement and understanding of what their strengths are and what they can best contribute to a project. And then that's how things get pushed and pulled and and shaped. Um, And so it's just, yeah, we're, we're exploring different ways of creating and running a rehearsal room so that we don't perpetuate dangerous power structures and dynamics. Um, and especially because we're working with a lot of racialized artists, we're working with people who have been excluded from leadership roles or positions of power in our industry, and we want them to feel empowered when they come to work with us. And so I, I don't think we've found the best way to do this yet, but we want to keep trying this. And this is part of our iteration right now. So I can hear the gains um, in terms of empowering voices in the room, right? That idea of co-creator. Um, are there any downsides you've been experiencing and exploring this? I'm feeling like this is a fairly fresh model you're working at. Yeah, I think the biggest struggle is, well, it's not really a struggle. It's just, it it takes a lot of preparation because it's not actually that we're just doing a project. We're actually building a community. Um, And that's the thing that kind of I've just started to understand, um, you know, in the past maybe two years, um, that when we bring people together to work on a project, it's not just about me saying, oh, I like these five artists. Let's put them in a room and see what happens. It's about like, 
taking the time, having lots of coffees with different people, really like listening and understanding where those dots can connect and then making introductions, letting those people have coffees together and then like slowly bringing people together, which is why like, you know, we're, we're just about to start producing our first operas that we commissioned and we're just starting our second wave of commissioning um, because it does like building community takes a long time. And so we have to invest in that time. So these are groundbreaking innovations. You're quite aware that you are really at the front. I feel like you're in the icebreaker up in the Arctic and you're smashing your way through and making this new path. Um, and it really is artist as entrepreneur. What's it been like for you as a Chinese Canadian woman <laughs> to be at the front of this? Yeah, it, this is a tough one because I've had so many conversations now with so many different people in our sector from funders to company leaders to other artists. And it's a hard thing to describe. But, you know, if I were just to be very blunt, if I were a white male in our society, then I perhaps would always be given the benefit of the doubt. I could walk in a room with the confidence that I have now and and kind of tell my vision and people would probably, you know, be like, yeah, okay, that sounds good. Let's go for it. Let's do it. But my experience because of who I am and because of my identity has meant that I have had to prove myself. Um, and this is part of being told what I'm not constantly until I am. And I feel like that is what I've had to do is just insist that I am and keep proving myself over and over and over again. And, you know, my position in society, I enjoy a lot of privileges. And so I can't complain, really. But if I were a white man, my path would be very different. And I, you know, there's a significant amount of work that goes into every single progression that we make as a company, as my myself, as a leader. Um, and I finally gave up on looking at existing structures and existing ways of doing because I just kept hitting I don't. I've, I stopped using the term glass ceiling because I deeply believe that if you are a, a black indigenous person of color and you are female identified, gender diverse, or trans, there is no such thing as a glass ceiling. There is the concrete floor of the basement that you are sitting in, and I don't want to be a part of that building anymore. I'm going to take the emergency exit, and I'm going to start building new things. <laughs> and so that it took me a long time to kind of like realize that I could fight against these things and and keep like you know hitting up against the the concrete wall, or I could take my little detour and start building up new things and then also be a space where other people can come and feel empowered to do the same thing. And so that's what I'm hoping will happen, that we are seeding a garden that is going to start to flourish and that other people will feel like they can also grow their own structures and build their own communities um, to, to create the work and do the work that they want to do. So... So if we're going to move opera away from this very white, patriarchal place that it currently lives, is that possible? Can you see an innovation that works or do we just, do we abandon ship at this point? <laughs> um, I think, uh, honestly, like one of the things that I feel really um, like I'm sort of shifting my focus to these days is um, just the lack of representation of female-identified, gender-diverse, and trans people of color in leadership positions, like top leadership positions in our organizations and leading productions. Whatever it is that need, that is being led, um, there's, there's a huge leadership gap there. And I don't know that we need to, again, for me, like, 
working within the existing structures doesn't work for me. Um, but I do want to start seeing more people leading from different communities. I think that's where innovation and change is going to come from, our, our next generation of leaders that are going to rise up. Debbie Wong is the artistic director of Renaissance Opera. What's Up With Opera is a podcast by Pacific Opera Victoria. It's produced by me, Rebecca Haas, along with Denise Ball and Jennifer Van Evra. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, write a review and share. And join me for our next episode when I'll talk with Anne Majette, the legendary opera critic from the New York Times and Washington Post who broke opera's biggest Me Too story. Thank you.